I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we explore those virtues and cultivate those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. Welcome back for another episode, folks. So glad you are with us once more. We are well into the swing of back to school season and uh, and grateful you've taken time out of your week to, to listen to Faith and Politics. I am not broadcasting from the great state of South Dakota where under God the people rule this week. I am uh, traveling for, for military duty, but I'm grateful as always uh, to our guests for, uh, for connecting remotely. Uh, this week, my guest is the result of some listener feedback. Had a number of listeners reach out, very interested in hearing from Dr. Paul Kengor, who is the Senior Director and Chief Academic Fellow for the Institute for Faith and Freedom and Professor of Political Science at Grove City College. He is the author of a book called The Devil and Karl Marx, Communism's Long March of De- Death, Deception, and Infiltration. And uh, Dr. Kenger has been um, sort of widely quoted and, and interviewed in the media, uh, both secular media and, uh, and on Catholic, uh, some Catholic outlets, including EWTN. Dr. Kengor, welcome to the program. Yeah, Chris, it's good to be with you. Thanks. It's, it's My thanks to, to your listeners. Yes, it, and it's great. To, I like to be responsive to, to the listener feedback. As I mentioned, a lot of listeners really interested in this work of yours, a fascinating book. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. Before we launch into the book, I want to pose to you a question that uh, we've kind of been kicking off our, our show in the last couple months by just visiting a little bit with our guests. Uh, a question that I want to pose to you as well. It's a, it's a simple question, been getting a variety of responses, and we'd love to hear your answer. And it's simply this, Dr. Kinger, why, why are you a Catholic? Oh, well, boy, we could probably do the whole show just on that. But I am, so I, I, I'm, I'm a convert. I mean, technically, really, I'm a revert. So I was, I was raised in the Catholic Church in, in what my friend Robbie George and I call the Dark Ages. That would be the 1970s, mm. right? Yes. <laughs> so, and, and, and I remember saying that to Robbie George when he asked me, my conversion story and he said oh you need not say anything more right uh but but i grew up in the 1970s which was just a just a terrible time in the church and i i chris i learned absolutely nothing i mean i knew nothing about the faith yeah, baptized, confirmed, first communion. Uh, you know, I, I didn't know that that bread that we ate was supposed to be the body and blood of Christ. Eucharist, what's that? Never heard that before. That's communion, I think, right? And, you know, how many sacraments? What's a sacrament? I don't know. I don't know how many there are. You know, one, two, a hundred. I don't have any idea. So when I went off to college, it was really, really easy to become an atheist, agnostic at least, if not an atheist. And then I eventually really didn't become a Christian. I mean, Catholics would say, well, you were baptized, you were confirmed, right? You were a Christian. Well, all right, you know, maybe technically so, but, you know, certainly not in practice, not in belief. So I became, I I sort of came to Christianity through evangelical Christians in the early 1990s, mid-1990s in graduate school. And I ended up in, well, you, I did what, what most Protestants do is I, I church hopped, right? Different denominations, independent non-denominational churches. I actually settled in a Presbyterian church, but I wasn't really Presbyterian. 
and our first child was baptized, Presbyterian Church, but started teaching Bible study, which is what they, you know, usually do for anybody who has a PhD. <laughs> hey, why don't you teach Bible study? <laughs> like, I don't know anything about the Bible, right? You know, why should you, why do you want me to teach it? Well, you're a teacher, right? Well, yeah, I, I got my PhD in foreign policy, man. I, I don't know anything about the Bible, <laughs> but, 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 <laughs> but I, but I read it and I taught it and I taught classes and, and just started really getting into the faith, digging deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And the more that I dug in and the more that I learned, the more I learned about the early church, the more I learned about different denominations, the more I learned about the Catholic Church. And I mean, this is such a long story. I'm going to have to cut it short. But, 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 but I, I, I came to the conclusion that, among other things, this sort of religious relativism that I was seeing in, in all the non-Catholic churches, they were all over the place. And, and, you know, it's, it's funny, I've, I've really come to learn that being a Protestant means only one thing, you're not Catholic, right? Uh, but that's about the only way that they can commonly define themselves, because otherwise they all completely differ. I mean, a Methodist, a Presbyterian, a Baptist, um, yes. you know, various forms, of, yeah, various forms of, Presby- of, of Presbyterians, we used to call them the split peas, the Presbyterians, <laughs> they were constantly splitting. Right. And in, in fact, the church that I was in was the mainline denomination, Presbyterian Church USA. And just in the last few years, that that denomination is split. Yes. And in fact, yeah our, yeah, our two main Presbyterian PCUSA churches in town in Grove City are both now in new and completely different Presbyterian denominations. So I saw that. I saw how you know the the pastor, the the congregation, the elders, which was you know mainly just older people from the church who who agreed to give their time, could get together once a month and and determine how often we should do communion, right? Which was only symbolic, yep. and then they could decide on their own by a meeting, you know, majority of the twelve people sitting there whether or not to use wine or grape juice. Well, what kind of cracker to use, what kind of wafer to use. And then when you're done with it at the end of the service, not the mass, the service, quite literally take it outside and chuck it to the birds. Mm. And then I found out that some other denominations believed in, well, you know, transubstantiation or not transubstantiation, consubstantiation or the Episcopalians. They kind of believe that, that you know, it's not just symbolic. It has more meaning than that. And But it's almost kind of up to the individual. I thought, well, either it's symbolic or it isn't. And where, where does the, the priest in the Anglican Church get the get the power to consecrate it, right? He, he says he doesn't consecrate it, so it can't be consecrated. So, so I, I saw all of this, this kind of lack of authority with all the different denominations and, and so much more, um, in, including the subject that I studied, uh, John Paul II, uh, the end of the Cold War. Yep. Uh, you know, I, I, that that's really what I studied in graduate school. It's what I wrote most of my books about. Ronald Reagan, the end of the Cold War, and I started studying John Paul II very carefully. And I'll never forget reading reading his encyclicals. In fact, three of them: Veritatis Splendor, Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason, and Evangelium Vitae. And thinking to myself, "Wow, this is 
this is profound. Yes. You know, there, there's nothing like this in the, you know, the Christian bookstores that I go to and, and, and looking at the, all the footnotes and the end notes and the, all the documentation, and then getting a hold of a copy of the catechism and reading the catechism and thinking, wow, these guys really know their stuff. This is, this is profound. This is deep. You know, they're quoting here, Clement of Alexandria, you know, uh, St. Jerome, you know, people from the 300s and 400s. So there was this rich intellectual tradition consistent going back for 2000 years that you didn't have in any of the other denominations. So all of that and more eventually led me to to convert or I guess revert to the Catholic Church in April 2005. Right at the the very time that John Paul II died. That's That's, right. Wow. That's when I came into the church. What a beautiful story. And you're, without knowing it, you're plugging for the South Dakota Catholic Conference Book Club, which is currently meeting by Zoom (laughs) every Wednesday, folks. You can still, if there's time to join. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be reading Veritatis Splendor. So folks want to read that. They can email me and jump into the book club. Um, that beautiful story. Thank you for sharing. I wish we could talk about it for our whole half hour, but I do want to turn to this, this really just a compelling book, The Devil and Karl mm-hmm. Marx, which, you know, it's published by Tan Books, which I think a lot of people know as a publisher of spiritual reading. You're a historian. Would you characterize the work really as, is it spiritual history? I mean, what genre does this work fit into? Well, that's a good question. There is a kind of narrow category out there called spiritual biography. Mm. And the way that that began for me, Chris, was the first book that I published, other than my dissertation, which doesn't really count, right? But um, the first book I published was called God and Ronald Reagan, which was published in 2004. And that that was a bestseller. And immediately I had people coming after me, hey, do God in this, do God in that, right? All these other different ideas. I did, uh, I followed up with God and George W. Bush. I even did God and Hillary Clinton, which, um, which surprises some of my friends, but I said, look, you know, this isn't a worshipful book. It's just a book about her faith, right? Uh, so you're talking about the faith of, of faiths of different historical figures. I, I study, I lecture on the faith of presidents. So, and I got a lot of offers to do a lot of other sort of faith-based books, declined a lot of them, well, declined most of them, but I've always been interested in and lectured on Karl Marx and Marx's atheism and his really disturbing interest and and writings on the devil, his his poems, his, his plays, his poetry. And I knew, I knew the famous quote because I lecture about it where I teach Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania. I do a whole course on Marxism and we, we read Marx's writings. And I, I know the famous quote, religion is the opiate of the masses. But so with the case of Karl Marx, I used to teach my students you know, what Marx said about religion, what he, what he wrote about the devil, what he believed about spirituality, this really dark side, this dark personal side of Marx. And so I always wanted to do something on Marx and religion. And I wasn't going to call it God and Karl Marx because Marx didn't believe in God. But I, I thought for a long time I should do something along the lines of the devil and Karl Marx. 
And when I offered the idea, actually I didn't really offer the idea, but the, the late wonderful John Morehouse of Tan Books, who died tragically about a year or two ago, he was trying to convince me <laughs> to do a book with Tan. And I kept saying, look, I love Tan. And you're a good guy too, John, but I got way too much going on, way too much. I got way too many books I'm working on. And he said, well, come on, just think of me. Are you working on anything? I said, oh, I don't even want to tell you this, right? Well, yeah, I have a kind of a manuscript that I'm working on called The Devil and Karl Marx. And he said, oh, I want that. I want that book. I want that book. So, so I, I did it, and, and, it, and people will see as soon as they read it, it is a thoroughly Catholic book from start to finish. In fact, the only negative review that I got on the book, which was by a, a, a young writer for National Review, uh, his main criticism is that the book was too Catholic. <laughs> I said, well, you know, guilty, <laughs> guilty as charged. Uh, but, but it was a lot of what Marx was doing was a direct attack on the Catholic Church, and as I show throughout the book, Chris, the, the, the one group institutionally, and, and I should say, this was a powerful factor in my conversion or reversion to the Catholic Church in the 1990s. I studied communism, I studied the Cold War, I studied the Soviet Union, and when I saw that the one group out there that had consistently and most vehemently and uh, most persuasively, um, it, it beautifully, almost poetic in its language, uh, had, that had opposed communism from the very beginning, it was the Roman Catholic Church. And, and the first encyclical that did, that did so was by Pope Pius IX, Qui Pluribus, published in 1846, two years before the Communist Manifesto was even published. Wow. You know, we get worried about this, this dark, dangerous ideology called communism. So yeah, the, 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 the church, how the church could have foreseen all of that, I thought to myself when I was reading this, this stuff in the 1990s, uh, wow, these Catholics claim to have this thing called the magisterium, right? And they believe the Holy Spirit is speaking to it and guiding it to truth. And, and looking, well, looking at what they were writing way before anybody else. And so consistently for so long, you know, maybe these guys are on to something here, right? Because there's nothing like this in any other denomination. So, so, th- so this book goes, goes through all of that. You know, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to go on. No, that's, that's quite all right. It's, it's fascinating. And I think a lot of people know, think of Marx, you know, we're familiar with uh, the famous quote about religion as the opiate of the masses. And we're aware that, you know, these iterations of Marxism in, in the Soviet Union and in China, they are atheistic. But I think some people kind of have this overly simplistic caricature of Marx as, oh, it's just an economic theory. But, but I think, I mean, and you lay this out right from the very beginning is at the heart of it, there's something inherently spiritual or, or even anti-spiritual. You give this quotation at the beginning of the book from one of Marx's 1837 writings. He says, thus heaven I forfeited. I know it full well. My soul once true to God is chosen for hell. I mean, that's, that's very stark and, and very, as you say, dark. 
It is. And, and I, and I would argue too, that, and a lot of people say, well, you know, he could have been, he could have been just writing about this stuff in a sort of a, a fictional way, right? Like Edgar Allan Poe, right? Writing, writing uh, about evil and, and, and no, 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 no. In, in, in the case of Marx, uh, there's, you know, this goes deeper into his personal life, into his psyche. And, and I argue, Chris, that, that those lines in Marx's case are at least partly biographical. I mean, I would never say as a Catholic that one soul is chosen for hell. Right. But, you know, but, but Marx, certainly my soul once true to God, his soul was once true to God. He, he had, he had been a believer. He had been Lutheran. And, and in fact, his, his father comes from a Jewish family. Marx, by the way, was really anti-Semitic. I mean, he's got some horribly anti-Semitic statements later in life, but, but the father converted to Lutheranism in the 1800s. And which, which is odd because the community that they grew up in was staunchly Roman Catholic. They grew up in the, in the city of Trier, oh, Germany, wow. which is, which is where, yeah, the great cathedral yes. that was built by St. Helena. Yes. Uh, you know, the, the, yeah. The, the mother of Constantine, which, which, which contains what she believes was, she went there on a, on a pilgrimage to the Holy land in the fourth century, brought back what she believed was the Holy robe of Jesus mm. that the, that the, that the, that the soldiers, Roman soldiers cast lots for at the foot of the cross. And it, in fact, Marx in one of his chilling plays, Ulanem, which is an anagram for Emmanuel, uh, he has this satanic character who's playing on this, this violin and summoning up the, these dark forces. He, Marx not only wrote the character and wrote the script, he also wrote the stage and, and wrote the costumes. He has that character, this Ulanem character, wearing the holy robe of Jesus mm. while he's doing that. So, so, yeah, there, yeah there's, there's, there's a lot of that. And, and just one other thing, he said in that Opiate of the Masses essay, he said, uh, not just religion is the opiate of the masses, it is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, the soul of soulless conditions. Everybody forgets all of that. That's all in the same sentence. And he also says in that essay, the criticism of religion is the beginning of all criticism. And for a man who called for the, quote, ruthless criticism of everything that exists, unquote, you know, going after religion was absolutely fundamental to Marx and the Marxist project. And it still is to this day. Well, and, and that's the thing I want to talk about next. We've got about 10 minutes left. You, you use this word criticism. And I think people today are hearing about things that would, we can broadly categorize as critical theories. What can you tell us about the Frankfurt School and sort of um, Marx as leading to the Frankfurt School. What is it and how do we understand it? Yeah, well, I, I would jump straight ahead to all the critical theory today, which is Marxist based. And, and, and really critical theory is, is aptly named because what they're about is criticizing, attacking, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, undermining. And uh, you know, the, the critical theorists, yeah, the Frankfurt School, which comes out of Frankfurt, Germany, 1920s, 1930s, they were the first ones to take Marxism and break it out of the class-based economic model. So for them, it wasn't just about class. It wasn't just about economics. It wasn't just about money and capital. They began applying it to culture. 
so did Antonio Gramsci, who was who was an Italian uh, theorist, kind of a you know, cultural Marxist. Marxism applied to culture, right? Culture, culture, culture. The Frankfurt guys, uh, Theodore Adorno, Max Horkheimer, mostly affiliated with them too was Wilhelm Reich, who quite literally coined the term and wrote the book, The Sexual Revolution in the 1930s. Uh, Herbert Marcuse, who became the guru to the 1960s New Left in the United States. He was the mentor to Angela Davis, who um, Angela Davis writes the foreword to the memoirs of Patrice Cullors, uh, the, the, the founder of Black Lives Matter. And they, they began applying 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s up forward. They began applying Marx's ideas to culture, to sexuality. They were Wilhelm Reich and the Frankfurters. These guys were Freudian Marxists. I mean, Freudian Marxists. Imagine, imagine thinking the ideas of Marx and Freud. First of all, liking either one of them, right? They liked both of them and trying to fuse them into a common field or theory. But that's what they tried to do. And today's critical theorists, they are, and this is absolutely without any question whatsoever, Patrice Cullors, the founder of Black Lives Matter. In fact, um, people can Google the American Spectator, Paul Kengor, and, and look up Patrice Cullors, Black Lives Matter. I wrote a piece called The Politics of Patrice Cullors. This is all in her memoirs, all in her memoirs and all, in all, all of her statements. They, they apply their Marxism to race. And so whereas Marx was all about criticizing everything according to, to class and economics, the modern critical race theory are all about criticizing everything according to modern paradigms of race. And, and whereas Marx separated everybody into classes, these modern racial critical theorists separate everybody into racial groups. And, and if you just read the memoirs of someone like Patrice Cullors, this is very disturbing, especially from a Catholic or Christian perspective. Uh, you are not an individual in their framework, in their worldview. You belong to a group. And, and that group and that identity defines you. It's really sick. It's not like the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. said that to be defined by, uh, by the content of your character, not the color of your skin. No, no, no. To these guys, you are defined by the color of your skin. And this is incredibly divisive. If, if, if you're white, then you're in this oppressor group. And if you don't realize as a white person that you're in this oppressor group, you've got to be enlightened and taught that you're in this oppressor group. You have to learn that. And if you're black, you're in this victim group. You know, they started capitalizing black with an uppercase B, right? So it, it becomes your identity. It's how you're defined. And, 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 and frankly, people listening will nodding to them when I, when I say this, it is racist itself. It is itself racist. It racializes everything. Uh, and, and so, and this is what Marx did with class. For Marx, the alpha and the omega was class, class, class. Economics, 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 money, 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 capital, capital, capital. For these people, it's race, race, race. And so that's how the modern critical race theorists, that's what they do with Marx, or at least that's how you can apply this sort of broader Marxist paradigm to what they do today. So if I can try and just offer maybe a synthesis of the concern from a Christian standpoint is that um, these Marxists and critical theories, they're constantly seeking to divide, whereas a Christian will, will seek to unify in truth, which 
um, you know, we can have obligations towards groups and the common good, but we also have inherent dignity as individuals. Is that, am I kind of getting towards the target? In oh, no, you're, you're right on. Yeah, you're right on. And, and what could be more offensive than walking up to, you know, like me as a white person and let's say my youngest son who's black, who's adopted, right? And saying, uh, okay, Paul, you're white. That means you think this way. And uh, Benedict, uh, you're black. That means you think this way which would completely puzzle the poor little kid, right? I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's learned that he's a Christian. Uh, he's a child of God. He's a human being made in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, right? You know, he, he is not to be defined as based on the color of his skin. Or a friend of mine, a fellow Catholic, he's an editor, who um, also has adopted black children. He told me about being at the park one day and this very progressive woman comes up to him and says, well, are, are you going to teach her about her culture? <laughs> right? and, he, and he wanted to say, uh, excuse me? What, now what, what, what culture would that be? I'm going to teach her to be a Catholic. Right? I'm going to teach her to be a Christian, by the way, which is what, like, you know, what Augustine was. Augustine was from Northern Africa, you yeah. know, probably darker skin type. You know, what's his quote unquote culture? Right. So is this kind of a very racist way of looking at people and yet they're doing it and they're getting, and they're getting away with it in the name of being anti-racist. It's yeah. everything is just completely turned on, on, on its head. It, it, it's like what they do with this whole tolerance thing, right? Um, oh, you're not being tolerant. Well, we, you know, we're, we're, whereas at the same time, they don't tolerate you and your beliefs when they disagree with them. Yeah. So they're, they're always uh, inverting the, these things to, for, for, the, for their own destructive purposes. And yes, it's a very divisive um, ideology, worldview. You know, that's one of the beautiful things I love about the, the parish my, my wife and I, my, our family worships at, is you can sit in the fourth row, and in the three rows in front of you, you'll see people from every continent. And there's just a, you know, there's a beautiful unity, actually, in that unified in the worship of God. It's, it's really beautiful. Dr. Kangori, in the we've got about two and a half minutes left. Do you, do you, what thoughts do you have for people about what they might do in response to these uh, ideas that are that are out there in society that can be harmful in many ways. Well, so I would say listen to shows like yours. Uh, you know, you know, get. I guess I'm this shameless plug for my own book, right? Uh, but get writings like mine, other people, the people that are out there that are writing along these lines, books like this. And, uh, and, and get them to people and to younger people in particular, because they're not learning this stuff. And believe me, they're not learning it at the universities. In fact, the very worst place are the universities. So if you send your child off to college to major in history for four years and you think that he or she is going to get straightened out on this stuff, no, 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 no. No, they're going to learn this toxic junk. And they're also going to learn it at many Catholic colleges that are no longer very faithfully Catholic. So, so you're going to have to do a lot of self-educating, build up your library, your bookshelf, um, you know, get some good videos, get some good clips, be, you know, be discriminating. Don't just take any, you know, kind of garbage off the internet, off the internet. Right. But, but we've got to do a lot of remedial basic education because the, the, the education, our schools, and especially our universities have absolutely failed us. So um, church militant, right? You know, that's what we are here in this world where we, where we fight evil. And so it's the job, I think, of, um, of Catholics to do that. 
Well, that's so well put. And I'm, I'm thinking back to the story you told at the beginning of your own conversion, just the importance and power of truth. And I'm thinking of Augustine. The truth is like a lion. You just have to set it free and it'll take care of itself. So, yeah, Professor, so grateful for you taking the time to, to visit with us. Thanks for coming on the program. Okay, Chris, anytime. Thanks. Thank you, as always, dear listeners, for tuning in. Uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, this, this broadcast, if you've got ideas, as always, love to hear listener feedback. Don't hesitate to reach out. You can go to sdcatholicconference.org and click Contact Us. If you're listening to this on your favorite podcast application, give us a rating. We love to hear and see those ratings and, uh, and share it with others. Until next time, dear friends, live well. Live well.